The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit ego surfing and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 378 with guest Michael Izzo, recorded live Monday, August 25th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man known as the Larry King of .NET... Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut. Richard's still on vacation. He'll be back here next week. Uh, and uh, he's just getting back from climbing Mount Everest, if you can believe that. You know, we're in the middle of our uh, contest, the, the .NET Rocks Tech Ed Europe Sweepstakes. What we're doing is we're, we have a uh, forum on the website. If you go to .nerocks.com slash Barcelona, answer a question about last week's, uh, one of last week's shows. And this week's question is, in show 376, what word does Charles Petzold use to describe Alan Turing? Is it a geek, a nerd, or a genius? And if you listen to that show, you should probably know that. Just go ahead and uh, enter that in. You might win a Tom Bin brain bag. That's Tom Bin, T-O-M-B-I-H-N, brain bag, which is the most indestructible backpack known to man. Uh, and the winners of those every week, we're going to choose one lucky winner to go to Barcelona for Tech Ed, which is happening. Um, and, and, you know, here's the really cool thing. We're going to pick on October 20th, we're going to pick the winner. TechEd Developer is happening uh, November 10th through the 14th. So we're going to pick on October 20th. But here's the cool thing. You can choose to go either this year or next year. That's, that's the deal. So, and we'll pay your airfare, your hotel, and give you admission to the conference. Uh, 
all for just listening to .NET Rocks. So there you go. Uh, we are suspending Better Know Framework and email until Richard gets back, but I do want to point out a couple of things. Um, DNR TV, if you don't know what that is, DNRTV.com. It's .NET Rocks Television. It's an hour-long weekly screencast with uh, lots and lots of people that you know. There's 122 of them in the archives. Recently, Miguel Castro did a uh, discussion where... Recently, Miguel Castro did a demo where he created a WCF service and a client, uh, and he did it using Visual Studio, and we took a look at all the goo that Visual Studio's Wizards puts in the projects, and then he did it from scratch, and he shows you how easy it is just to do it from scratch, so that was good. Uh, what else we got? Beth Massey did a great show, show 119 on XML literals and VB.net. Very A very popular series. Dan Simmons did two shows on the Entity Framework from Microsoft. Rocky Lotka has been showing off his CSLA.net 3.5. Uh, Mark Miller did the Science of Great UI, and his part two will be up this week. And also, Billy Hollis did a great uh, demo of an, a regular line of business application that uses WPF, Windows Presentation Foundation. You want to check it out. DNRTV.com. A lot of our listeners like to gather a group of people at lunchtime once a week and watch a DNR TV together over pizza. This is the lunch and learn phenomena that's been sweeping the country and the world. DNRTV.com. Know it, love it, learn it. Our guest today is Michael Izzard, who's a researcher at Microsoft Research in Silicon Valley. He received his uh, D-Phil now, what is that? A doctorate of philosophy? Right, it's PhD uh, down the around the other way. Okay, uh, in computer vision from the Oxford University Engineering Science Department in 1998. In 1999, he started work as a researcher at the Compact Systems Research Center in Palo Alto, and he's worked for Microsoft Research in Silicon Valley since 2002. Majority of his early research was in the field of visual tracking and sequential filtering. And he helped to introduce particle filters to the computer vision community with the condensation algorithm. From the time he joined Compaq, his interests have been broadened to include distributed systems research. And this is where he's spending the majority of his time at Microsoft. Welcome, Michael. Thanks. Your current project that you're working on that everybody's very excited about is Dryad. Tell us us about that. So uh, the original purpose of the Dryad project is... Uh, we were interested in trying to make it easier to program large clusters of computers. So if you have anything up to a data center with thousands of computers down to a a personal cluster of five or six machines, um, the idea is to try and take out the distributed systems uh, pain and have the system deal with the distribution of the data and figuring out what to run where and the fault tolerance and let you just get on with programming it. So there's scheduling t- as well as uh, as well as the basic parallelism. That's right. Wow, this is interesting, Richard. And this is something that you've been interested in, and and I guess uh, well, and we've done a few shows around this area to one degree or another. Sure. So are we talking about particular problems that uh, that this is best for? Or are you really talking about a sort of transparent clustering that you don't have to well, write any code? So. It is transparent, but only for particular problems. So, you know, we're not, <laughs> it's not magic. Uh, 
So if if you have a problem that works well as a batch computation, so we we concentrate on throughput, uh, not latency. Uh, so you know, for example, in the fault tolerance, uh, you know, may take a minute for timeouts to kick in and things. You're not going to be you're not going to be answering real time queries with this. Right. But if you have some problem that can be uh, expressed as a batch computation, and in particular, uh, you need to be able to structure the problem so that it starts out with some input data, which you can think of as, as immutable, and then <clears throat> does some series of operations on that and the intermediate uh, data that you produce and then produces a, a single output data uh, data set, then that, that's the kind of problem we can address. So it doesn't work for streaming on infinite streams or anything either. It's start out with some finite input data and do a bunch of uh, transformations and end up with an output. So is this something that you would take um, maybe a large set of data and divvy it up between a hundred or a thousand or whatever many computers and then uh, have them all working on their chunk of that data and reporting back? Is this the typical grid computing application? Uh, yes. I mean, the yes, up until the point where you said reporting back. Uh, so, yeah, you, you would start out by you'd partition out your data set onto, onto a bunch of different computers. Um, but uh the way you can think of the computation is if you can draw a graph where you know you can think of each of the original partitions of the data as one of the uh the vertices in this graph and then you can draw edges to other vertices which are where com- uh, computation takes place so each of those internal vertices can be getting data from several places that's been produced sort of upstream uh and then at the end it writes out to the uh the final data set at the end but it's not kind of reporting back in the middle, exactly. Um, okay. So, you know, they, they can do exchanges. Between, you can do aggregations of, of data sets. You can exchange data between. It's not like these things are, are acting completely isolated and then just each doing their bit and reporting back. They get to communicate the outputs with each other, so you can do more more complicated processing. Interesting. So, and in, and ultimately, that report back could result in additional processing. So you could you could really get into sort of a uh, a parallel uh, recursive process. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, the way that we do recursion is we just unroll the loop. But certainly, we can, uh, if somebody needs it, we can extend it to to make that recursion based on you know some uh, stopping criterion. You know, if something's converged, for example. Interesting. And and then now there's also a link aspect to this as well. That's right. So. When we originally did the Dryad project, uh, we we were building the machinery to do this kind of distributed computation where you're taking very large data sets and transforming them, uh, but we didn't really know how we were going to program it, and it turned out to be a pretty flexible system for, for doing a bunch of computations we were interested in, and the, the performance was fine, but uh, it it was not, people weren't jumping up and down to, to use it based on the programming model. Uh, and then actually my colleague Yuan Yu um, <clears throat> uh, came up with the idea of integrating it with Link, and and that's been a lot more successful. People are uh, people really like that because I mean Link is, to my mind, is a great technology for programming with datasets, uh, and it, it's it works for us in a few ways. One is it's just a nice programming model for this kind of problem that that we're interested in. And the other is the design of Link made it very easy for us to integrate with Dryad so that from the programmer's perspective, they can just write a Link program and debug it locally using Visual Studio the way you would any regular Link program. 
Yeah. And then if they just say that actually no, the the uh, the data set comes lives on the cluster, then the design of Link means that the system can transparently suddenly invoke Dryad and and do all the the distribution work uh, using all of the the great .NET reflection and and everything to to make it all happen. Pretty pretty transparently. I guess that's the part that I'm still trying to get my head around. I dig the idea that you're using Link, and I and I see here looking at the docs specifically P Link mm-hmm. to to write the initial expression. So my code is pretty straightforward. I'm just writing a a, a Link statement, right? But the is it just pushing a collection to a set of servers essentially, or how is the data get partitioned out like that? <clears throat> so. We assume that you've started out by partitioning the data set yourself. Right. So this may be because it's the output of some previous program that you wrote with Dryad Link, or it may just be that you got the data on some distributed uh, storage system that was automatically partitioning, or, you know, you could have manually partitioned it. Uh, and then uh, you tell Dryad Link, here's the location of my partition data set. Either you point it at the URI in the in the storage system, or you can manually make a, a list of the partitions, say, you know, these these partitions are on these computers with these file names, that kind of thing. And then uh, that becomes a, a, a link data provider. And uh, if you don't tell the system anything about it, then it will assume that there's just some set of random records. Um, I mean, you have to tell it the, the type of the records. Uh, but you can also, uh, you can add a... a uh, annotation to tell it that it's ordered, for example, that it's partitioned by a particular hash key, and then the system can make use of that so it doesn't do unnecessary work to, to repartition it. Getting back to um, the the technology itself, Dryad. What, by the way, what is what is a Dryad? What is the significance of that name, D R Y A D? So a Dryad is the animating spirit of forests and trees. So huh. we figured that you know you have this this uh, tree like computation. It's actually a, a a graph, but anyway, the dryad is the thing that that animates the tree. So that's why we picked it. <laughs> it's, that's interesting. Um, d- using dryad by itself, it, it does have a .NET interface. What? How, is it easy to sort of hook this up to any particular class? Do you use uh, attributes, or what's the interface like? Uh, well, for the dryad system itself, it's actually all uh, C++ interfaces. So uh, Dryad Link is a .NET interface, but you go entirely through the uh, the Link uh, interfaces there. Okay, so if you want to access these objects remotely directly, you have to use C++? Uh, so uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that... Yeah, I don't know why you'd ever do that. So... so uh, you said you, we you have, you're using C++ interfaces for to access objects. No, sorry. So the the data elements um, just look like link collections, and so there's no explicit Dryad interface for getting at those data elements. You just write link expressions on the collections. Okay. And then uh, you know those the functions that you put in the link expressions get executed remotely. So with Dryad without Link, there isn't there isn't a way. Is there or is not there a way just to say I want this process to, you know, go to these hundred or so machines? And is there a .NET interface for that? 
we do have wrappers around the the C++ interfaces for that, but uh, most people are not using that because uh, essentially because it's easier to program with Link. But yes, we we can drop down to the the more uh, low level interfaces if if people need that. I see. Yeah, I guess I'm still just trying to get my head around how all that data gets farmed out to all the servers. What's running on those machines that makes them part of this? Okay, so on each of those machines, there's a little daemon that is just in charge of of uh, forking processes on Dryad's behalf. And so uh, when you run a, uh, a Dryad link program, <clears throat> what happens is it, it starts out with the the link expression. So while the program's running, uh, the as the, the link expressions are being executed, uh, they're not really doing any processing. They are, uh, they're just building up an expression tree inside link. And then uh, when you try to evaluate any of the outputs of that expression tree, uh, at that point, uh, Dryad link kicks in and it takes that whole expression tree and it Treats it a little bit like a database query plan, so it it does some uh, some static optimizations to you know push select up and down and and you know figure out what the the whole the whole computation is, and then it writes out an XML description of that, and then it passes it over to a, a Dryad executable that takes that XML description and farms it out to the the cluster, and so then you you have this process running. Uh, which we call a job manager, which is a, a single process that's in charge of of doing all of the scheduling and figuring out what to run where. And so that will communicate with these demons that live on the cluster and say, you know, please run uh, this process here with these inputs. And then if, if there's a failure, for example, it will rerun it somewhere else. Or if it's running slowly, it'll run a duplicate somewhere else, that kind of thing. I see. You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik trainer is a slick WPF app that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, the the workload schedule here has got to be the really complicated part that you're dealing with the disassembly and distribution, then all of those executions, what's running well and what isn't, what failed and what didn't, what needs to be retried, and then trying to recompose that into something coherent. Right. So we we do a a, a few simplifications to make it manageable. So uh the the dryad link front end 
decides on the granularity of what's going to run at a at a particular vertex. So it breaks the link query down into subqueries, uh, and it uses some heuristics, and it you can uh, you can override those with annotations. Uh, for example, uh, if it can't figure out whether or not a a particular subquery sub -query is memory intensive, you can you can tell it, and so it can pipeline them together. Uh, <clears throat> so then it it decides what the sub sub expressions sub link expressions are going to be in each of these vertices, and then it passes those on on to the uh, the job manager, and so then the job manager uh, just has to decide. Uh, you know how many copies of these things to run based on the size of the data, and it has to decide uh, where to run them and and when to uh, to reschedule them if there are failures and things. But uh, because of the way that we've restricted the the computation, uh, it's it's an acyclic graph. So all the edges in that graph I was talking about at the beginning, they they all uh, they all go in the same direction as it were. You can sort the graph from from top to bottom. So that simplifies the scheduling problem because, you know, even if you're only down to one working computer in the cluster, there is some sort order for the graph. And so if you if you just execute the vertices one after another in, in the right order, they will eventually complete. So um, so really then the, the scheduler's job is just to pick a, uh, a greedy algorithm to, to try and do better than that and try to, try to use the available computers as well as possible trading off between putting the computation close to its input data and then also using machines that are idle. So you're yeah, looking at taking advantage of the resources it has available. So you're looking right. at CPU usage and things like that as well then. Right. I, I mean again at the moment it's it's mostly fairly simplistic so um unless the programmer is confident and has has put on an annotation then the system just assumes that uh it should only run one of these vertices at a time on any given computer. Right. So it's not it's not doing fancy. Uh, <clears throat> and then all you really need to do is measure how long each vertice takes to give you a sense of what's fast and what's slow. Exactly, that's right. Yeah, so you're not really having to dive deep into the machine to understand its performance. You're just looking at I sent you this piece of work. How long did it take? Right. So, uh, so we do actually have uh, other research going on on the side um, to monitor the whole cluster and look at the machines and find. Anomalies. So uh, we had one actually the other week where uh, one of the computers had a bad network card, and so it, it was it was working. Things were completing, but all of the network I/O was was running a factor of ten too slow. Right. So you know, by looking at the whole cluster uh, across multiple jobs, uh, you start to see those things popping out. Um, but that that's kind of a, a separate monitoring tool on the side of Dryad. Dryad just tries to do the right thing locally for that job, and it, it assumes that some cluster monitoring thing on the side is then going to retire those machines sooner or later. And so it works around it in the short term, but it doesn't um, It doesn't go and, and uh, do anything extreme to that computer. doesn't actually figure that out per se. It's very cool. I'm just getting, I'm still, you know, getting my head around. And actually, I've dug into the website and, and found uh, the sample applications that mm -hmm. were there. Uh, uh, some sort of basic ones just to get folks started. Can you talk to some of these? Uh, let me just go load that up as well. Yeah, I'm looking at the, the PDF. Right. So this is actually a companion to a paper that's going to appear in the OSDI conference in uh, December. Cool. But we don't have the text of that paper up yet. 
I got as far as like 1.4, the FGREP example is just a, the nice thing about this is there's not that much code. Right. Like you don't feel like you're parallelizing anything. That's right. And, and really that's, um, that link that, that we're, that we're, uh, we're leveraging there. I mean, I'm a big fan of Link, and I can say all sorts of nice things about it because it, I didn't do any of it. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think Link is just a great, uh, a great set of interface and environment for doing parallel programming. And you know, you you see people sometimes who who look at it and they think that it's really a front end for SQL, and I think it's a lot more than that. Sure. Yeah, we definitely had conversations on the show where it seems to me that link to SQL is the least of links capabilities, that it is the, the more, uh, obscure or more complex data types like XML and, and, and so forth that where link really shows its chops right. for, for making it life easier for developers. But the fact that we can abstract away the fact that this is being clustered is amazing to me. Like, what a great proof of the potential of Link. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so I have the the FGREP, the 1.4 there. And so if, uh, for our listeners, if you uh, get we'll, we'll, the links for the show, we'll include a link to the Dryad site, and you can get to this research paper that is a PDF file. We're on page 7. It's it's uh, the FGREP example. It's only a handful of lines. But it really, to me, encapsulates the great abstraction we've got here where you'd never know we were running in a cluster here. Right. Hmm. So, uh, so there's, uh, the, the first thing, there's a, uh, a static fgrep function, which is just, uh, which is just saying it, it takes a, uh, string from a collection and, uh, re- returns the elements of that collection where, <clears throat> Uh, the string contains a particular subscreen. So it's a very simple, uh, uh, simplified graph example. Right. And then there's a main program which starts off, uh, by essentially telling the system where it can find the input files. So it says, uh, that, uh, the partitions of the original input can be found in this, in this path. And then there's a, input file.txt which which describes the number of partitions and which computers they live on and that kind of thing. Uh and then you just make a uh, a dryad data context which is a link description of what where the data can be found. Uh and then you say uh you ask it to get a table from that data context based on this file name this input file.txt which says what the actual partitions are and that's a uh that's um, parameterized uh, by saying that it's a line record, and essentially what that's saying is that these file names are all made up of regular uh, newline terminated strings. Right. So here we have a a standard um, deserializer serializer for uh, newline terminated strings because lots of uh, log files in particular turn up as that. If you had some more complicated uh, data format of your own, you can write. Uh, custom deserializers, of course, and and if you just use a uh, a regular C sharp struct, then Dryad Link will will generate all the serialization code for you. But but in this case, you know the the file is assumed to to come out as these new line terminated uh, strings. So that's using a a, a built in Dryad Link class to deal with those. Uh, and then uh, we just make we t- there's a, a line of link that. Uh, basically turns those line records into strings. It just 
does a select on that initial table where each line record uh, gets mapped onto the uh, the string field of that of that record, um, and then we do the match just by applying this fgrep function to that table. And when this main program executes, each each of those lines, as I said earlier, they're just building up a query expression uh, in the uh, in the local machine, uh, and then it calls this show on console function for the output of that fgrep. And it's at that point that it tries to materialize some of the, the results of the, the query. And at that point, uh, Dryadlink will kick in and it will it will construct the query plan and ship it off to the cluster and actually run it and then go fetch the results back. So the Dryad data contact statement was really the point where you said, here is the block of data that you're supposed to distribute. Right. And the Dryad table construct set the how to decompose that data across those machines. Well, no, so the data has already been decomposed by somebody across those machines. So what happens is uh, somebody has has, <clears throat> has placed all these on the cluster machines. Oh, I see. So the, fi- the file that you're referencing to in the dry data context actually represents files that exist on every one of the machines in the cluster? That's right. So we've got to go take this. If we if imagine we're starting off with a huge file, right. we're going to break it up into chunks and ship it to all of the machines in the cluster. Exactly right. And, and better make it the same file name, or you're going to have trouble. <laughs> well, so right. this input file.txt is actually the description of of the names of the partitions. So you can make it called whatever you want. Okay. Um, but you know th- that's kind of a bootstrapping issue. Um, I mean, you know, the question is where do you get this big file? And, you know, for a lot of applications, you know, say this is some some log file, well, maybe it's already been partitioned because you were collecting the logs on a big cluster already, or, right. you know, it was writing out, it was, you know, truncating each file at, at 10 meg or something. So, you know, a lot of these very large data applications, uh, you're already starting off with something that's partitioned. And if you aren't, then, then you have to partition it manually. Yes. But I think it's a salient thing to understand that mm-hmm. the actual partitioning process is done separately. That's not Dryad's responsibility. Right. Although when it writes out the output of a computation, that will be written out as a partition, a set of partitions into the cluster, which you can then use as an input for the next one. Right. But yes, if you're starting out with you. And, and so, uh, and something to note there is that uh, the way that you have partitioned your original data is going to have a big effect on the program that Dryad then runs because, you know, its natural inclination, unless unless it can see a better thing to do, you know, if you have 50 partitions, it will run 50 processes, one on each of those partitions. Right. Um, and then, you know, if you have a much larger cluster, it may it may try and repartition that. But given that local disk is... A lot more efficient than uh, than pushing everything across the network at once. Uh, it it tries to keep things just reading from the local disk as much as possible. But it does have the ability to to move workload to other machines. That's right. So if one of these machines in this cluster is having problems for whatever reason and starts to kick out exceptions, there's a mechanism by which Dryad's able to pull that data from that machine and place it elsewhere. Well. Uh, not exactly. So it can pull that data from the remote machine um, just using a remote file transfer protocol. Um, if the machine's really having problems, you may not be able to pull the data. So if yes. you actually want 
if you want to guard against that, you can have uh, multiple replicas of each of these partitions. And so, you know, in reality, most large clusters that you would run this on, you would have a a real distributed file system that was managing all of that for you and that was moving these partitions around and re-replicating when machines failed and that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I've just recently configured a distributed file system setup and see exactly that. That would be right. the, you'd simply harness it across multiple machines anyway, so that would just happen for you. Exactly, and so th- there's a fairly uh, uh, simple interface layer um, that we can plug right into to existing distributed file systems. And so, you know, a lot of these examples assume that you just have, you know, the five machines that you had spare in your in your storage closet, and so you don't necessarily have a distributed file system. And if you just want to take it and play with it, then you can just manually partition the files. But in practice, if, you, if you're using this seriously for any long-running uh, application, you would, you would want a real distributed file system. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. I'm just thinking of other possibilities of how I might utilize this. You know, it, it, I like the distribution mechanism uh, as a better way to harness even multi-core machines rather than trying to farm out a whole bunch of threads to just kick off a whole lot of processes that will individually use processors anyway. Well, so that's actually an interesting... Uh uh, I, I, you know, I think the, the research is still not fully conclusive on that. So um, we do actually have multi-core machines on our clusters, but if you remember, uh, what Dryad Link does is it takes its original link expression and it decomposes it into sub-expressions, but each of those is still a link expression. Right. So the way we actually execute it is at the remote machine, we use plink to use the multiple cores on that machine so that each of those sub-expressions is also executed in parallel on the cores of those machines. And so, you know, the, the P-Link team is doing a great job of, of solving that problem for multi-core, and there are slightly different trade-offs. When you have the shared memory, there are, you know, there are different things which are more efficient. And so, for the moment, uh, you know, that seems to be a good division of work, that uh, we use P-Link within a single... Uh, shared memory machine and Dryad to distribute among uh, among machines. Multiple but, machines. Know, it really it, comes down to what resource is the limiting factor in this processing, and it's not CPU. We've got lots of that. It's probably not even memory. I guess it's really disk. If it's, if you're reading serially between through one big file, it's going to take longer than if that file's chopped up into fifty pieces on fifty machines and they're all reading simultaneously. Right. I mean, we different people uh, run different workloads on this, and some of them are CPU-bound, actually. Um, okay. But, you know, we can get P-Link to, uh, you know, if we have... So, you know, you might be doing image processing on a video, for example, and so each of the machines might have, you know, a few thousand frames of video, and you can process those frames in parallel using P-Link um, at those local machines still. 
And this is not about the size of the video that's the issue. This is about how much work it takes to do the rendering on each one of those frames. Right. Or the, or yes, or the analysis. And so it's just a way of, of, uh, of farming out a lot of work to, uh, to a lot of computers transparently. There are, you know, there's a, mi- there's a mixture of, of things which are, are, uh, IO bound and compute bound. And, and I think we haven't, we haven't got a great idea of which, uh, we, we have successful, uh, successful programs running in, in, in both of those areas. So. You um, worked on the uh, MSN search project. That's right. I got to think that some of this um, came out of the work that you did there. No? Uh, so, yes, both indirectly and directly. So, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, my PhD was in computer vision and so, shortly after I got to Microsoft, I got the opportunity to to work kind of as a virtual developer on the on the V1 search engine uh, that had just started up. And so, for me, that was a lot of education in building a real system and in you know real software development practices outside of research in a product group. Uh, so, you know, I learned a lot of supporting, you know knowledge I, I learned a lot from experienced people about how large systems work and how you build them uh, and also I saw some of the needs that groups like search were going to have for processing large amounts of data and so that was also an inspiration for wanting to work on this quite a quite a lot of um, quite a lot of grid computing going on in the search industry that's for sure yep yeah has Microsoft been using, utilizing any of uh, any of this for their search, or do they have their own sort of? Um... Uh, yes, this has been used in the in the backend processing of of uh, logs for search uh, for a couple of years now. Wow, excellent! Well, and the big thing here is the in I mean the come the integration into Studio, integration into Links, so. You're sort of minimizing the amount of work I have to do as a developer to learn how to use this, the stuff I should already know. Right. That's the intention, certainly. So where are we going to get surprised as .NET developers in getting our heads around uh, actually doing uh, Dryad? I'm just, and I'm just guessing that the, one of the challenges has got to be partitioning. Right. So certainly... You have to think a little bit differently. You have to think about partitioning a little bit, although the system is fairly good at letting you ignore that. So it will usually pick the number of partitions um, for the intermediate data, for example. Right. I um, mean, it will try and... So, you know, often the if, if you have a really large data set, then the best thing to do is to, uh, is to over-partition it. So, you know, if you have a few hundred machines if you make tens of thousands of partitions, so each machine has multiple partitions on it, that gives the system the opportunity to really do as much work as it wants to, you know, on each machine and pick the granularity so that, so that the programmer doesn't have to, to understand that. As you, as you move to smaller, you know, if your initial data set is going to be in, in 10 or 20 partitions, then you might have to understand something about the, the workload to, to pick the number of partitions. Right, but by partitioning in many, many small chunks, you're giving the uh, giving Dryad enough granularity to do what it thinks is best. That's right, and you know it's it's obviously not perfect as you can imagine, but it, it does a pretty good job. 
So, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the hard work in it, once you've com- once you've converted your program to Link, then a lot of the hard work has been done. So, right. uh, you know, there's a there's a certain mindset that you have to get into, which is, I mean, Link is really functional program um, if you want to look at it that way. Sure. And so, you know, once 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 you take your your old sequential program and or your old sequential mindset and and start to think of composing data sets functionally instead, then having done that transformation uh, often gets you to the point where you you have a reasonable distributed uh, dryad link execution. So the so we we just had several interns. Uh, in our lab for the summer that we that we're using dry link and so I think by and large they were up and running pretty quickly uh it wasn't a a big learning curve i think the the main issue is around performance debugging at this point so if it if, when it isn't fast what do you do i guess it's got to be the hard part right and and when there's some strange bug how do you find out what it is so uh, for example, we had somebody who was trying to do a, a page rank like uh, algorithm, and so there were a bunch of URLs that were partitioned up, and you know one of the machines was was just running a lot slower than all the rest of them. So they went and looked at it, and it turned out that the uh, the hash partition function wasn't very good. There was some domain that was very large, and they were all being put in the same bucket. So fine, you know you. You go and look at that, and you use a different hash partitioning. But then it was still running much slower on one of the machines. And uh, eventually, it turned out that the issue was that in some particular group on some host, uh, the URLs were a lot longer. So even though each of the partitions had roughly the same number of URLs at that point, this one machine was starting to page because you know the, the memory footprint of that, that was just much larger. And it's that kind of you know, debugging, you know, you look at all of the the sizes of the input and the number of records there and it all looks fine and still something is going wrong, then, you, you know, we need better tools to, to dig down on that level of, of bug. But they're relatively unusual. I mean, it's currently compared to what we expected. It's uh, it's surprisingly easy to get something that, that works most of the time. Well, and in there lies the sort of opportunities for Dryad uh, optimizer to say, well, this one machine is really struggling. Let's ship some of its workload off. And if you give it enough granularity, you ought to be able to do that. That's right. And at the moment, uh, we don't have that happening automatically. It's not going to, to repartition uh, on the fly, although we're certainly talking about ways to do that. Um, and also, I think there's a lot of scope for sort of profile-guided optimization in the large that, you know, it's pretty unusual that you only run a program once, especially if you're debugging it. And so each time it executes, it can collect a lot of statistics and, and hopefully do a better job the next time. That's very, it just reminds me of SQL Server, that the more you query SQL Server, the more it understands about the queries you're going to run. Absolutely. And, and, and the data that's running against. And again, this is one of the nice things about Link, is that although the Link expression plans are more general than uh, than the rec- relational query language. You know, we have decades of research in 
databases that we can uh, we can learn from. So it's not like we're starting from scratch here. Yeah, and now I'm starting to think in terms of rather than the file system, if I had databases on each one of these machines that I could spread data around to, would this still make sense? Well, yes, actually, again, you know, let me talk up link. So uh, we can do that. Um, if you stick a database on each of the computers, then we can use link to uh, SQL locally. Um, and then that will push down as much of the computation as possible into the database engine. And then, you know, the rest of the uh, the functions that aren't implemented down there, it then gets materialized up as C-sharp objects and can get shipped around by Dryad. So it's actually a very nice integration story there. Uh, we, we're looking into uh, maybe outfitting a cluster with each machine having a SQL database on some of the disks and just flat files on the other ones and see if we can get a really nice... Um, you know, different data sets living in different parts of the disk depending on, on their characteristics. And get a feel for you know, what things are going to behave better in one model or the other. It's it's just got a lot of possibilities. Right, and we can make use of all the SQL indexes for things where that's going to be a big win without going and trying to redo all that ourselves. Yeah, why reinvent that? Right. Uh, where file systems are fine when the data is in, it doesn't have an inherent order that you care about. Right. Or is already ordered that way. Or, or is already ordered, exactly. And so for a lot of this intermediate data, uh, we're writing it out sequentially and reading it back in sequentially. And, you know, you don't want the overhead of sticking it into a database which doesn't know any better and is going gonna, is gonna to do extra work for you. And so, you know, we can just slam it out to the raw disk as fast as possible when that's appropriate. But when it's not, it's great to be able to use SQL. So how big a cluster have you played with uh, for Dryad so far? So uh, the research cluster we have in the building is about 250 computers that uh, we've done a lot of the Dryad link research on. Uh, the search team has larger clusters than that. Um, so, but yeah, most of the research happens on, on a few hundred machines. Well, and, and knowing it runs at a few hundred really shouldn't make any difference that it gets to, to a few thousand. And what elements of this aren't going to scale? Is it the integration that becomes difficult? So in my experience, every time we've gone up an order of magnitude computers, we find something that, you know, falls over and needs to be needs to be tidied up. Um, right. But there hasn't been any showstopper. It's been more, you know, we try not to, uh, to aggressively optimize um, things that don't need to be optimized. And so, you know, the things that need to be optimized, you usually find one or two extra yeah. ones. Um, and, you know, that's, I think that's, that's fine. That's to be expected. Well, the fun will be, in, in, you know, every order of magnitude. So get 10,000 servers together, you'll get some new problem. I can't exactly. wait to see 100,000 servers together. That would be fun. Right. So, I mean, at some point, there, there may be diminishing returns on, try, you know, that, I think there's a real question of w when you have 100,000 servers, the extent to which it's good to have a single cluster compared to um, 10, 10,000 computer clusters. Sure. And, you know, there are, uh, because the data is being shipped around across the network, we don't have, and I don't think we really know how to have perfect resource isolation between two jobs running at the same time. And so I, I think it, we're still 
we're still a couple of years out from being able to say, you know, with a 100,000 machine cluster, you know, you can have these 10,000 machines and and we can give you a perfect SLA regardless of what else is running on the cluster. Yeah, the, the network contention when you get into that kind of size gets very complicated. It gets very complicated, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so, you yeah, know, we... That's where you're going to stumble. We have... We do our best with that, but it's it's certainly nowhere nowhere near perfect yet. So you know there are still reasons why, and and just practical reasons for deployment. Well, there's something you said right off the bat that this is about this is not about latency; it's about throughput. There is an overhead to organizing all of this. So unless the problem's big enough, the overhead can overwhelm the savings. That's right. And uh, and the same problem as the as you try and scale this up, it doesn't scale uniformly because eventually, uh, I'm I'm an I'm an Ethernet geek, so I know when I hit eighty percent saturation in a switch, I start getting a collision rate that suddenly eats up more and more of my bandwidth, and it gets worse, not better, as you put more pressure on it. Right, and so then, you know, historically, a lot of these large data centers have been built with uh, hierarchical pre-structured networks and you know maybe there are there are different topologies that will that will scale better for example but we still got to get back to the problem of what are we doing that we think we need a hundred thousand computers right do you need a hundred thousand computers for a single job i mean there there i'm sure there are some that could benefit from that but you know for most people uh if you get up to that level, you're, what you're really going to be doing is running a lot more jobs at once. And then, then you know, the question is whether it wouldn't be easier to just have more smaller clusters. And, you know, there are arguments in, in both directions. Depends partly on how much shared data you have. If you have a really vast collection of data that you only want to keep one copy of, then that then that can be an argument for having larger and larger clusters. But, right. you know, you, you're always going to need geo-replication if it's that important anyway, so... And and do you see this as sort of a, a specialized task kind of thing that that a, an organization would put together this cluster of machines purely to work this one problem? Is it? It just doesn't seem to me like a general use cluster would ever exist. Well, we we have a lot of people who want to use our cluster for their problems. So uh, I, I don't know. I think we're still learning what the full range of problems that work well in this architecture are, but I, I think we, we haven't run out yet, certainly. Yeah, and I wonder if that's more of a proof thing of, I have this particular problem, and if I can run it on your cluster and it does a great job, then I want my own to keep solving this problem. I should think NASA would be interested in this, actually, because they, don't they get tons and tons of telemetry from their various spacecraft that have to be poured over in various ways? Well, and, and also the whole supercomputing model in general, right? Like, just reading about the new petaflop machines that the the uh, uh, the nuclear physics guys need. This is a different way of solving that problem, although I wouldn't know if it actually would solve that problem. Well, I think there are some some of those problems where they're really pouring over large amounts of data that it might be good for, uh, although I believe they have to do a lot of the work um, very much in real time because they can't afford to store the, the data even once. Wow. Um, but... Yes, I I, I don't That's know a, beyond that. I mean, it's a bad the, problem to have. <laughs> yeah, the uh, 
a lot of the historically the supercomputers have been used for finite element situation uh, simulations of weather and and bomb simulations and that kind of thing, and uh, you know that's the the sort of problem set that MPI was really designed for, and where the algorithm sorry that, MPI MPI is um, actually I don't know what the acronym expands to, but it's the it's the standard. Um, distributed computing interfaces that that people use in the supercomputer world. Okay, uh, so the sort of standard way of using supercomputers versus something along these lines. Right, and a lot of those algorithms do frequent synchronization, um, so that so they have all of the computers do a relatively small amount of work and then communicate with each other and then do some more work and then communicate, and that's how these finite element simulations work. And, and so, and so those systems have been optimized for doing that pattern of communication very well, whereas uh, Dryad is really optimized for um, doing doing more work between uh, between stages and having fewer um, sort of many-to-many communication layers. And so, you know, I think we're, we're addressing a slightly different class of problems that uh, you, you, you can do either with either architecture, but we're optimized more for, for slightly different problems. Yeah, so, I mean, the interesting thing about here, and I I really feel like this is one of Microsoft's specialties, is bringing this sort of of what was once the white lab coat type technologies into uh, more uh, easy access use to the point where we can really experiment with, does my problem work in this scenario? And if it does, then uh, it's this is not about buying a supercomputer. It's about ganging a bunch to, a bunch of older machines together to do, get the same results. Right. That's really what we're what we're aiming at with Rydalink, certainly. A message passing interface. Okay. That's the Computer Communications Protocol for Parallel Computation, MPI. Wow, that's really an anticlimactic. Yeah, sorry I asked. Yeah, yeah, geez, I've ruined it for <laughs> me. <laughs> but I guess the magic of really serious parallelization is how do I distribute the work and and communicate about the work and integrate the work? Right. So, what's next for Dryad? So we are continuing to do uh, research into the system level aspects of Dryad. So I, I mentioned that we were doing research. We we had an intern this summer working on the, the monitoring problem uh, and we're trying to build tools to uh, to help you learn more about why your job ran slow. And we also, I mean, I alluded to briefly this, this uh, resource isolation problem. When you have a lot of jobs running on the same cluster, the scheduling problem obviously gets even more interesting. You know, the original Dryad design uh, for simplicity, uh, we we tried to make it do the best thing when there was just one job on the cluster. And of course, you know, it's hard to use an entire cluster for the, the length of the entire job. So really, you want um, you want multiple jobs running at the same time to get good sure. good utilization. So the, you know, there are other there's other research in academia that we can build on there, and you know, we're looking at that, and we're looking at the the special purpose, you know, the, the the things that we can do, optimize, optimizations we can make because of the way Dryad works to try and improve that. Um, and, you know, we're getting more and more people inside the company using Dryad Link, and 
uh, Yuan is still going forwards on, uh, you know, finding things that it doesn't do the way people would like and, and making improvements and and just, you know, broadening the user base and learning more about how it behaves. And so this is something we can go download right now and take out for a spin? Unfortunately not. It's a, it's a research project still, and at the moment it's just uh, internal only. Uh, of course, you know, we talk to product groups all the time, and we would like at some point to have some kind of external release, but for now it's, it's internal only, I'm afraid. You can read yet. about uh, about how it works and see the example programs that we were talking about on the, on the website, but for now it's, uh, it's just internal. There aren't actually bytes we can lay our hands on yet. Correct. One of these days. Hopefully. <laughs> That's a fascinating look at a fascinating project. All right. Well, um, I guess that brings us to the end of the show. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. And keep up the great work. Thanks, all. And we'll see you next time. Dr. Ross. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got a